Welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Alicia Udwani, and I'm the host of this episode, which is being recorded from the NCBP Mid-Year Meeting. Joining me now are Dana and Keith Cutler. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start with Dana. Okay, I'm Dana Cutler. I have been practicing law for more than 30 years in education law, specifically charter schools and litigation. I've been practicing law with my husband, Keith Cutler, and my dad. Um, And I was the first woman of color president at the Missouri Bar. And that work led me to want to work on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession. That's amazing. And how about you, Keith? Uh, I'm Keith Cutler. I also have been practicing for over 30 years. I'm a civil defense attorney, and you know, over the course of the last 30 years, I've been the president of two bar associations, and I am currently in the rotation to be the president of the Kansas City Metropolitan Bar Association in a couple of years. Awesome. And you guys also have your own TV show, is that right? That's true. We uh, <laughs> are the co-hosts of the nationally syndicated two-time Emmy-nominated Couples Court with the Cutlers. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, We're here today to discuss microaggressions. So let's start from the beginning. What is a microaggression and how is a microaggression different from an overt racial bias? A microaggression is a word or an expression or some outward action towards someone uh, that really makes them feel like uh, the person who is doing it is biased. It differs from an overt action in that when you call someone a name or use a racial epithet or make a homophobic remark, I mean, it's pretty clear what the person's intention is. But the microaggression is not quite as clear. You don't know whether the person intends to be offensive or whether they uh, just don't know. Um, I guess an example would be if you talking to an attorney who is Latino and you make a comment about, wow, you must have uh, come from a large family. Probably was pretty rough growing up, wasn't it? Well, you assume that because they're Latino, they come from a large family, which may or may not be the case. And so you're not really intending to offend the person, but you're making assumptions about them based on their outward appearance. And so that's an example of a microaggression. And I think another point is that sometimes they get, they get hidden into like a compliment, like, oh my gosh, you speak such good English. So the person who's saying it, they think they're giving you a compliment when in reality they're doing, they're giving you a, a little micro insult, right? Exactly. It, it's kind of what's referred to as a backhand compliment. Right. It sounds like a compliment, but it's really a backhand across the face. But the interesting piece to it is, they don't real oftentimes they don't realize what they've said is actually offensive. They think that they're giving you a compliment and it's like, mm, no, not really. Right, right. So how can microaggressions impact someone's life? Well, I, you know, let's talk about it in the workspace in particular. 
it sets the person, uh, the recipient of the microaggression, it kind of keeps you on edge. You're having to be more wary and more, you know, fearful in the workspace because you never know how people are going to come at you. And you're never sure about what's your intent when you say or do these things. And it creates an environment where you just feel that there's less hospitality. And that, I think, over a time where you don't feel you're being embraced for your skill sets and who you are has a long-term effect on on your viability with that entity. Um, in In the bar world or in a more social aspect, it will keep you from being adventurous. You, you're like, I don't want to put up with that, so I'm not going to go to somewhere where there aren't people like me or people who have my viewpoint. And so now you are self-limiting because you don't want to find yourself in an awkward or painful situation over and over and over again. So the impact can be quite detrimental because as we know in our profession, we grow our businesses, we make contacts, we establish relationships with judges and others by those interactions. So it can, it can impact your, your uh, whole trajectory in this profession if you, if you find yourself being afraid to reach out to people because you might be attacked by microaggression or microinsult. Right, right. So clearly these comments or gestures, although sometimes made with positive intentions, can affect someone in a really big way. And ultimately, it could even impede their work productivity um, because they're always on edge. Um, So what are some tips that we can use to to address our own bias um, so that we can avoid communicating with our peers in a microaggressive way? I would say the first thing that we all need to do is recognize that we have these biases. And I think that is a huge first step because when you talk about bias, people automatically think, you know, something very negative and no one wants to admit that they could be biased or that they could be treating someone other than in a fair manner. And so the knee jerk reaction is to say, well, I'm not biased. That doesn't apply to me. I believe everybody is equal. And so until you recognize that you have some implicit biases and some unconscious biases that play out in your daily life, until people realize that and really come to grips with it, uh, nothing's ever going to change. So the very first step is to recognize, you know, I need to take an inward look. I need to see what am I doing and could this be offensive to someone? And then the second thing, once you recognize that you could be biased and you could be the proponent of microaggressions or the perpetrator of microaggressions, I should say, the next thing you need to do is be thoughtful about what you say and what you do and how you treat people. Um, Lawyers are very good at analyzing words and determining how they can be misconstrued. That's how we draft contracts and leases and everything. We make sure there's no ambiguity in what we say and do. In that same manner, we need to evaluate everything that we say and how we interact with people so that there is no ambiguity, so that something isn't taken the wrong way. And to be thoughtful about what we say and to make sure that no one is going to be offended by it. 
where no one could possibly be offended by it. That sounds like a lot of work, but if you are very thoughtful about it and look at it from you know, a different perspective, uh, it makes it easier. For sure, for sure. So this is my last question for you guys. How can a bar association address racial bias? Because I recently read that women of color particularly and people of color drop out of the practice of law at a much higher rate um, than others. So as a bar association, how can we address racial bias so that we can encourage more people to stay in the practice of law? Well, I, I, I would say this issue of race and ethnicity is like fighting a hydra. There are so many heads. You cut off one head, there's still 10 to kill. And in some instances, just like the hydra, that head will grow back. You'll make steps, you'll make strides forward. And then you find yourself like, oh my God, I thought we had already conquered this piece. So this is not a, a quick fix. This is not, this is a long haul proposition. But there are some things that I think you can do. One is providing, bar associations providing training opportunities for law firms. Uh, uh, CLE, encouraging, like the, we had a, all the major law firms in Kansas City signed off on an agreement, an agreement to support diversity and equity in their law firms. So creating an opportunity for law firms to say, we're in this with you, and then creating in those firms real programming and real change so that you have this inclusivity. I think, you know, the harder comments are tying people's pay, whether it be in a law firm or in a bar association, the executive director, we got to see some change. And we don't want just lip service to it. That gets a lot of people's attention when you're talking about, I could have a, a bonus or not have a bonus based on this issue. Having a transparent process to be on committees or to serve in leadership. You know, a lot of times people feel like you have to have a magic word or know a special person to get entry into the, you know, behind the curtain. And really, if you have a more transparent, open process, you automatically open it up to people that you might not know, hang out with, it just on its face. So those are things that bar bar associations or, or um, mandatory bars can do. I think having or looking and promoting uh, changes to your state's professional rules of conduct, saying that, you know, putting in requirements that CLEs take place that there be training on implicit bias. If you don't have those things, you find yourself preaching to the choir. People who are interested in diversity will show up, but the people who really need to hear about diversity, that's not applicable to me. So, you know, grassroots app a request to change the rules so that it's a requirement. Those are the kinds of things that bar uh, associations or mandatory bars can get behind to move the ball forward. And I think one thing I like to add on that issue, what can bar associations do? It starts from the top. It has to start from the executive director and it has to start from the officers of the bar association because it, entities have cultures. There are certain things that will go on in a law firm that you can never do in another law firm because the cultures are different. 
There's certain things you can get away with Judge A that you can never do in Judge B's courtroom because the culture is different. And so the Bar Association has to foster a culture where people know we are inclusive, we want everybody to be involved, and bias and prejudice is not going to be accepted. That's not what we're about, and that's not our culture. So it has to start from the top. And I completely agree. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dana and Keith Cutlers, for joining us today and sharing their wisdom with us. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.